Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we watched Intermission, a 2003 dark comedy drama directed by John Crowley, the director of Brooklyn. Starring an ensemble cast, including A-list Irish stars Killian Murphy and Colin Farrell, it follows the relationships and criminal exploits of a group of interconnected people in Dublin. So this is not a movie that I had ever heard of. I think it's probably very few of our listeners have heard of this movie, but it definitely was received well at the time. And I think if you were someone who was following indie movies in the early 2000s, you probably would have encountered this film. This was a request from someone on Patreon whose whose only name that we have is their username on Patreon, which is Snout Beetle, which I think is Love great. It. Love Snow Beetle. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you to Snout Beetle for requesting this. Their message about it I thought was interesting, which I looked up after watching the movie, which basically they said that they'd really liked this movie when it came out and remembered that sort of some parts of it hadn't aged well, but then other parts of it they still remembered fondly and were kind of curious about how it stood up to the test of time. I did not like this movie at all. I'm sorry to say, but I did find it an interesting time capsule to sort of that era of indie film. I started seeing tons and tons of movies in 2006, which is the year that my high school friend Nicole and I started seeing every single movie that was nominated for an Academy Award. Um, <laughs> so, so this is like a couple years before I was seeing like everything, but it's still close enough that like I recognized a lot of stuff from it. I think you liked it a little bit more than me. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't like bowled over, but like I found some parts of it enjoyable. I thought there was like an interesting range of characters and kind of in the same way as Morgan did, it's a real blast from the past. It's a kind of movie um, that was very on trend at this period, which is dozens of subplots at once. There's 11 subplots in this, according to some of the reviews I read. One cannot really count them while watching. (laughs) And also kind of just from the first few minutes, I was like, oh, okay, this is all very familiar because the credit sequence has this sort of scribbly aesthetic that reminded me of low budget indie music album covers from the early 2000s. (laughs) and it's all very sort of oh this is in the real world like it's very gritty not in the violent sense but it's like it's about like a working class community and it's all filmed in a very natural handheld manner and there's sort of fake documentary elements and also the first like five minutes are Colin Farrell basically chatting up this woman with the most early 2000s hair you will ever see. And I was like, oh my goodness, I know what we're in for here. This is a very specific period. Um, And he like chats her up and it's a great little Colin Farrell role. At this point, he was relatively famous, unlike Killian Murphy, who was like just coming up. And he like chats up this girl and then like massively punches her in the face because he's actually just chatting her up in order to rob the shop that she's working at. Um, So you get this like really shocking moment of violence in like the first five minutes and it kind of gets you in the right zone for the rest of the film because it's an extremely cynical movie that also has a lot of sort of toxic masculinity and gender roles themes which are intentional um and in some ways are quite well handled in other ways i was like oh yeah this is um this is really rooted in like a particular type of sexism that was happening at that period which i had kind of forgotten but it captured that that kind of attitude very well i think (laughs) Yeah, my take on the movie would be that I don't think they're self-aware about that 
at all. I mean, I think that the character, the fact that they have these characters, like the, all of the men in this are basically completely repulsive. Yes. And it simultaneously feels like they are genuinely taking on sort of different examples of toxic masculinity, while also the film itself is also kind of sexist. <laughs> Again, I would take out kind of from that sentence. I just found it... <laughs> extremely sexist i think they're kind of trying but i just do not have awareness about i mean the reference i gave to you when i was kind of mentioning i just finished watching this movie was i was like oh this was like the era of nuts magazine (laughs) (laughs) because like obviously you know there's a different flavor of sexism that every era has and in the uk there were like these boys magazines which were not like playboy like they would be like horny magazines with sexy women in them but they would just have these really kind of degrading articles that were sort of aimed at young men and they were just really gross and unpleasant and cruel and that kind of felt like the culture this movie was emerging from even though it's like it's not sexualizing the women like it's about sexual relationships between men and women and that sort of thing but like i was like oh that is kind of the atmosphere that this film has really captured in a way that I don't really recall having seen in other movies but it was kind of that combined with this sort of very gritty style of low budget indie Irish and UK drama that was kind of happening in the 90s and the 2000s. Well and as you mentioned you have the like a million plots going on at once thing which was (laughs) such a popular mode And I think you see it kind of get elevated into the independent and even studio films that go more mainstream within the couple of years that follow this. So Crash obviously wins Best Picture in 2005. And that is another movie that is like 10 interlocking plots. Very different tonally from this movie. 2006, Alejandro Iñárritu's movie Babel is like three or four plots that really don't have anything to do with each other, except that they have some tangential connection that is, again, like totally a drama that's nominated for an Oscar. Love Actually, different kind of movie, is, I want to say 2005? The same thing, right? And those are all bigger movies than this. Love Actually is a studio movie, the other two are indie films. But they're like way more mainstream, and this is totally like a tiny tiny movie that clearly didn't cost any money at all but it's an interesting case of like seeing something that's kind of fomenting in like the low indie space and then gets kind of picked up by people who are a little bit bigger and this like they just love this shit at that time being like but what if you had like (laughs) multiple plots going on at the same time and then you see the characters in the background from one of the other plots it's like yes (laughs) You could do that. <laughs> I mean, personally, I love the 1930-whatever film, The Women. <laughs> yes. I mean, that is more about, like, one story than any of these movies. But anyway, Morgan, why don't you tell us a bit about the filmmakers behind this? Because I think you are more familiar with them than I am. Yes. Well, it was interesting when we got this request, and I didn't know the movie, and I looked it up, and I was like, oh, John Crowley made this. I really like his work and I'm not mega familiar. Like he hasn't made actually a massive number of movies. I haven't seen a ton of them, but I've seen a couple and I really like them. And this movie bears no resemblance to the movies that I've seen. And I don't know the screenwriter's work as well, 
But the thing that they both collaborated on, which is only a few years after this, which is, again, just like a really interesting case of like, you can't always tell what people are capable of based on one project, is they both made this film together in 2007, I think, called Boy A, which was Andrew Garfield's first leading role in a movie. He's very young in it. And I saw that film summer of 2010 because I was interning at Focus Features that summer. And that was the, like, right before The Social Network came out. And he also had got cast as Spider-Man that summer. So everyone was kind of like, who is this Andrew Garfield kid? And we had, like, hundreds of DVDs of all these obscure movies. And you could just watch them because that's what working at a movie studio is like. And this had aired on channel four in the UK and like technically come out in the U S but it made like a hundred thousand dollars. Like it really didn't make any money at all. And it's based on a novel. that's based on a real criminal case about two young teenage boys who murdered a child. And then the, the novel is about one of them like getting out of prison as an adult. And it's really a stupendous and really affecting movie that could not be more different than the film that we watched. And John Crowley also, as we mentioned in the intro, I think is probably best known for directing the film Brooklyn a few years ago, which was the adaptation of Colin Tobin's uh, novel. It was a huge deal uh, around a decade ago that starred Saoirse Ronan, also a really lovely movie that's all about like a female character's experience which again is just like not what you would expect from this and mark O'Rao, um who has done a lot of playwriting i don't think much of it has come to new york so i've never heard of him but i think a lot of it has been like at the abbey in in dublin he's definitely successful in that zone but like he was one of the three credited screenwriters on the adaptation of normal people which i didn't watch but was obviously big project yeah big deal yeah and Crowley, we should also say too, um, started out in theater and has continued to do a ton of theater directing throughout his film career. So that's probably how they know each other would be my guess. But this movie has just like, nobody has heard of this. It's just kind of vanished. And I have a feeling that they're both like, that's fine. <laughs> like, we just don't need anyone to know that we did that. Well, this movie also is available just on YouTube, which suggests that whoever owns the copyright to it really doesn't care. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you look at the YouTube comments, it's full of people who are like, oh, this is my favorite movie. This is an unsung classic. So it's not a cult film because it's literally too obscure to be cult, but it clearly has lingered as do many films that kind of capture a specific point in time. And it definitely seems like one of those things where like, if you're a Stan, like for example, a Killian Murphy Stan, you're probably going to go back through his back catalogue and find this movie, which stars, as we said, Colin Farrell's like the first credit, but I wouldn't really say he's the main character. Kind of Killian Murphy probably has the mainest role, but he's plays this guy who's got this like crap job shelf stacking and he's also a petty criminal. And he's recently broken up with his girlfriend who's played by the wonderful actress Kelly McDonald. And then he's got a pal who's played by David Wilmot. And then there's there's numerous characters. We don't need to list them all off. But kind of the other more important ones are like Colin Farrell plays this like much more unpleasant petty criminal who's just like an asshole. And then Cole Meany plays uh, this detective who just thinks he's such a hard man. I thought he was a great character. Cole Meany, fantastic character actor. We all love him. Um, but is this guy who basically he wants to 
kind of be a reality TV star kind of before that really kicked off. But he hooks up with this documentary filmmaker who's looking for more serious, gritty content. And then this detective, Jerry Lynch, is like trying to basically market himself as this tough guy who's going to like show him around the mean streets of Dublin and like <laughs> all this bullshit. And I, as a very fun little role. And then you've got kind of Shirley Henderson, beloved uh, Scottish character actress, known for her very weird little voice. And she's playing a character whose role um, revolves around the fact that she has facial hair and everyone is constantly cruel to her about it and she's getting over this deeply unpleasant like abusive relationship with this guy who scammed her so the women in this movie are not having a good time of it no and the kelly mcdonald character is like in a relationship with this older man who's left his wife and his wife is just like having a breakdown his ex-wife now is just like having a breakdown it's not this is the whole situation is not great and she is has broken up with Killian Murphy because he like broke up with her to like test her his her affection for him I mean basically he's like an immature twat yes yes (laughs) yeah I mean I think before we get like totally into the plot of this movie although how like plot seems like a strange word to use because it's just a bunch of stuff going on that all kind of I mean it's intriguingly well conceived considering how many things are happening. <laughs> yeah. I think we should mention a bit more what was going on in the careers of Colin Farrell and Killian Murphy at this point because it is pretty interesting. As you said, Colin Farrell was definitely more famous. I think clearly the like the reason that he was first billed is that like he was the famous one, right? And his career like his early career is pretty interesting because he based like Hollywood basically like spotted him and then was like, you're going to be a movie star and we are going to make you really famous. And it is no surprise that he wound up having like substance abuse issues because it was like too much, like just way too I mean, this much. came the year after he did Minority Report, which we did a podcast on. Great movie. He also did Phone Booth in 2002. Yep. Like, if you look at his IMDb, he was extremely busy in the early 2000s. He starred as the villain in the Daredevil movie in the same year as this movie came out. He had, like, six films in 2003. Yes. And then he did freaking Alexander in 2004. And has been, like, very candid about the whole thing in interviews. That it was just, like, obviously there's a part of that experience where you're just like, wow, I've got access to like all of this like stuff that you get when you're a movie star, but also it's just like way too much. And as an actor, he's so much better doing like character stuff and Hollywood, because he's like so handsome, was just like, you're going to be a big action star. And that's not really (laughs) what he's good at. But it's interesting to me that he did this movie at all because he definitely did not need to, right? Like he's doing all these huge Hollywood films and also the next year does a home at the end of the world which is an American indie and then in 2005 does the new world with Terrence Malick so obviously he's like interested as we see from the entire rest of his career in doing kind of like smaller more interesting projects um and the fact that this is an Irish movie too uh, I'm sure was part of the motivation but um the part is just not very interesting so it's not a lot for him to do but I'm sure that's also partially how it got funded was that he agreed to be in it and Killian Murphy is 
as you say, like definitely way, way less famous. Kelly McDonald, I'm sure, was more well known than him because she had already been in train spotting in Gosford Park. Yeah. I mean, she point. was very established at this point. Yeah. Well, basically, this film came out the year after 28 Days Later. So Kelly Murphy had had his breakout role. And I found this great profile in the New York Times, which we will link to in the show notes, where it's a short profile and it's kind of very much like a portrait of someone who's up and coming because it's kind of talking about how he's in this not particularly great apartment in New York and like he's constantly locking himself out of his apartment because like he's just this like doofus in his late 20s but he's also already kind of talking about his career in this quite introspective way that I think reflects the type of movies he's taken throughout his career because he's never really gone for really big leading man roles and I think that's partly the prettiness factor which is something we've discussed with other actors in the past where Hollywood movies don't like sort of slim, pretty looking guys to be leading men, but also he likes to do sort of a mix of bigger and smaller roles. And he says like in this interview, he's like, he prefers characters that are a little bit darker, more ambiguous and more ambiguous. And he also says literally the year after 28 Days Later came out, he already says that it wasn't his favorite role. And he says it had a fantastic script, but most of it was about running away and screaming and shouting. The star of the movie was the premise. So, like, he's already kind of going for character-focused roles, like, five seconds after he's broken out on the mainstream. (laughs) Well, and 28 Days Later came out in the U.S. in 2003. So, basically, in the United States, this movie and that movie are coming out pretty much at the same time. So, that must have been very strange. (laughs) But also, essentially, in terms of, like, this movie being made and cast, like, he would not have been anybody... And I'm sure when they were making it, they're kind of like, oh, we've got like the next guy. And you do get a sense watching it that there's an ex- kind of an excitement on the part of the filmmakers about this actor. Because the role's just not interesting enough for him to be giving like a great performance, but he obviously is incredibly talented and he's really attractive. So the camera kind of like loves him a little bit in this movie. And he does have more screen time, I think, than anybody else. But having seen him now in so many other films because he's become so established, it is really interesting to watch him in this because he has, as you say from that profile, like really pursued roles where he gets to be kind of ambiguous. And because of his looks, he's done a lot of films where like he has a kind of like sexual ambiguity. I don't even mean in terms of like orientation, but like there's just something kind of like odd about him in a lot of movies because they're like, you have this weird face, so we're just going to use that. And in this, he's just playing like a dude. <laughs> right? Like... And the film kind of almost doesn't acknowledge that a key part of the appeal for Kelly McDonald would be the fact that he is clearly the most attractive person like available in the, yes. in her immediate social circle, because, which I think is kind of weird, like the the way that like women are sort of attracted to men in this film is like a bit ridiculous. I mean, also partly it's because like, Basically, every guy in this movie is treating women like complete crap, apart from Killian Murphy's friend, who sort of in the end gets with this other woman because he actually treats her like a human being, which is kind of not what's happening throughout the film. Like people are just on the pill or they're being cruel and unpleasant to their girlfriends and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, the question of women in the movie is interesting because also interesting in terms of like a reflection of the era because I did feel that the I mean I think the biggest problem with the the film is the screenplay a thousand percent like I think the screenplay is just a disaster but I think you kind of get the sense of 
the screenplay slash the movie in general, like trying to be sympathetic to the female characters. And as you say, it definitely is kind of like, yeah, these guys are assholes, but it can't quite grasp that the women are just like people. (laughs) And so you'll have moments where the female characters either just like behave in really unrealistically irrational ways. So for instance, the ex-scorned wife of the guy who's now dating Kelly McDonald at one point like runs into town in her bathrobe and just starts like beating her ex-husband up in like the middle of the street, which is just like a little bit too much, I think. Excessive. (laughs) And the story about Kelly McDonald's sister, who's the actress's name, I can't. Yeah, Shirley Henderson. Yeah, I just think of her as Moaning Myrtle, which I know is unfair, but that is how I was first introduced to her, and her voice is very memorable. She's, like, living with their mom, and she's the one with the mustache problem, which they just talk about endlessly. And, like, people are, random people are just, like, telling her about this to her face, which is like, what the fuck? And the story with her is that, like, she had this fiancé who scammed her, and, like, tied her to her bed and like took a dump on her before leaving and I was like that's just like a too much it's it's too much and again you kind of get the sense like the writer is trying to be like well bad stuff happened to this woman so we should feel bad for her but like can't grasp like how misogyny actually functions right and so he's come up with this outlandish like huge story that just feels cartoonish, right? And like dumb. Well, that's the thing. So that's why part of the reason why I was thinking of the sort of nuts magazine era, because it's sort of like depicting these examples of unpleasantness and misogyny, but it doesn't really kind of go into structural problems or the complexities of those relationships. Like it's all quite surface level and kind of in between that stuff, you've also got to deal with all the crime stuff. Right. And I do think that there are, like, occasional scenes in the movie that work or are effective. Like, there's a scene between this woman with the facial hair and her mother that's, like, quite moving, I think, where they're just, like, talking about her life and her problems. And her mom is talking about her husband, who has died many years before. And, like, occasional other moments where you get more of a sense of them, the characters as, like, real people... But you're only they're only kind of like glimpses through the like rest of the screenplay, which is like burdened by the conceit, right? Like there's it's trying to do so many things that it it's just like too much, which is also a problem with the crime stuff, which we can talk about. I mean, yeah. So overlapping with this relationship, this former relationship between Killian Murphy and Kelly McDonald. Kelly and Murphy and Colin Farrell and one of their pals sort of hatch a plan to rob a bank in town where the manager is Kelly McDonald's new boyfriend, the older guy. So they plan to hold these two hostage and Kelly McDonald will be the collateral while they use the bald guy to to like rob the bank. And it's sort of a Coen Brothers sort of narrative because you've got these characters who are clearly incompetent. They're kind of messy. It is comedic, although not really kind of laugh out loud comedic. And of course, this plan is really stupid and gets fucked up. And it also sort of overlaps with other stuff because you've got Colm Meany's cop character is 
fucking around everywhere with his documentary film guy (laughs) trying to seem tough by like beating up criminals and that sort of thing and it all ends in disaster for everyone but I was kind of interested because like we looked up some of the reviews from the time and um, as ever it's always interesting to look back at Roger Ebert's response he really liked this film he gave it three and a half stars out of four and he also compared it to Pulp Fiction several times which wasn't something that occurred to me but after I read that I was like oh that's interesting because it does kind of have this sort of higgledy-piggledy all over the place narrative and he points out that it starts off with this like sweet talk that turns violent scene which I'd kind of forgotten but it does have this kind of quality of that period where suddenly people were really into doing these comedic crime stories with dozens of characters and a lot of talking like it's a very talky movie yeah the Pulp Fiction comparison is interesting and when we were talking about the sort of like all the overlapping plots like trope that was going on i mean a lot of that is from pulp fiction right the difference there being that that's more like tarantino does this a lot of his movies it's like chapters as opposed to like flipping back and forth between these things that are kind of running in parallel to each other but i could definitely see how this movie probably was influenced by that and i think it's hard for people who weren't I mean, we were technically alive when Pulp Fiction came out, but we were like tiny children. So <laughs> not really relevant to us. But like that movie was such a huge phenomenon in a way that if you weren't there, I think it's a little bit hard to really wrap your mind around. And especially to like young people who were into movies at that time, it was like this seismic, seismic thing. And of course, the Coen brothers as well were like the guys, like the Tarantino and the Coens were like the the big guys in the 90s. So that's it's a really interesting sort of frame to use to look at this movie as something that is almost like a combination of references to these big American films. I mean, big in quotation marks, sorry, like they're all independents, but that is like trying to sort of draw on those things. And I think the difference is that though I mean I don't like Tarantino very much but I think his stuff in the 90s is much better than (laughs) than his recent work they just have a better grasp of of tone and comedy and like satire than this movie does right yeah I mean the other movie that I think very easily springs to mind with this film is in Bruges yes because it's another Irish film it's a it's a dark comedy drama and it stars Colin Farrell and that film is of course hilarious (laughs) yeah and I again like hated this movie but obviously you want to be kind of generous and like this is a first film for these guys so like they're obviously trying out stuff and it doesn't really work in my opinion but like most people's first thing is not the best and What's kind of interesting is that the stuff they've gone on to do is not in this mode at all. It's way more sort of like emotionally sincere and not particularly funny. So perhaps they do yeah, this. It's kind and- of like someone's first band. It's like they're in one band and then they get famous by a different band they've yeah. joined. <laughs> and they're like, nope, this actually was not for us at all. Like maybe humor's not the way. We're just going to be like really emotional. But yeah, I mean, it. The, but this was like what what was hot at the time. The stuff with the the documentary filmmaker and the cop, I think is the most successful on that level in the movie in terms of like having a satirical edge. 
in a, like a successful way because <laughs> the, the Calmini character, the cop, is truly embarrassing in like a very amusing way. Yeah. And they're much more just like types, which kind of works for yes, that tone. Exactly. And it isn't super common that you see a film with like a cop character where they're just like, this man is truly just like an embarrassing egomaniac. <laughs> I mean, that feels very Irish to me. Yes, definitely. <laughs> what that has to do with the rest of the movie, I, like, I mean, it obviously all connects at the end, but like, <laughs> kind of extraneous, but I did find it quite funny. And what helps with that a lot is that there's no, there are no women. I think, right? So you don't have to attempt any kind of romantic. Yeah, you've got a story that's about toxic masculinity that is just completely focused on this guy and his relationship with other men and Mm -hmm. how he perceives himself rather than him sort of, you know, just fucking around with women's emotions. I mean, yeah, basically that character just like, I mean, he's kind of a big fish in a small pond situation where he's roughing up criminals, but like, obviously he's not helping anyone. He's not doing anything that impressive. And the reason why he's able to rough up criminals is because, like, they're not that impressive either. And in the end of the film, he basically just does fuck up and then have his comeuppance. But he's still sort of performing this role for the documentarian. And, like, the documentarian guy is a perfect audience because he's this sort of effete academic type who's gone to film school and wants to make art and is a bit disturbed by everything. But he's also really receptive. So it's like, oh, you found your perfect target for your transparent bullshit. (laughs) Well, it's the classic case. And again, these are, they're both total types, but they're types for a reason of someone who's just like, I just want reality. It's like, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) And like reality is just this guy like faking because he's decided he's going to have a hard man persona. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a, the documentarian keeps having these conversations with the, his like boss, though the structure of whatever company he's working for, very unclear who's just like, no, we want footage of, like, cops being nice to, like, small children and dogs or whatever. And I was like, well, that also feels astute. Um, I was also amused by the fact that this filmmaker, in quotes, is, like, has a handheld camera and, like, no other equipment. And is just, like, filming random stuff. I was like, this would be unwatchable. <laughs> yeah. But it felt like that was also slightly self-aware. Like, I think you're supposed to know that Well, when you see him when he's doing his real project, he has a cameraman who's like, can we just do a straightforward shot? And he's like, no, we need this really artsy shot to make everything more impressive. (laughs) And then when he goes off by himself, he's basically forgetting to point the camera at Colmini all the time because he's scared of crime. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So that, I mean, and again, of course, if you're like a young filmmaker, you will totally have encountered people like this. So that felt the most kind of... Like, they have been around these people before. Whereas anything to do with romance just didn't work. Not so much. Because they've got the female characters, who, again, they're kind of trying to be sympathetic to. And these people went on, like, I think the adaptation of Brooklyn is not as good as the novel, but it's all from the perspective of the Saoirse Ronan character and is totally, like, about her experience in a very sincere way. And I didn't watch Normal People, but like, I doubt that it was like sexist. I think that probably would have come up in all the coverage, right? Um, But the problem with this movie is that the men who are sort of being assholes, a lot of them have to still kind of have these romantic situations with the female characters, right? And 
to talk about the ending, like, Killian Murphy is involved in a, like, violent hostage situation with Kelly McDonald, and they get together at the end of the film. And I was just like, Yeah, he does a little speech, and then she takes him back, and I was like, um, this is nonsense. Like, why are you giving this, like, a Shakespeare rom-com finale where everyone gets together? It's like, I will accept that what's-his-name and Shirley Henderson get together, because you see them having a conversation like two human beings, and also they're both kind of dumb, and they're in their 20s, and it's fine. But but the fact that Kelly McDonald's like, Kelly McDonald is the only normal person in the film. And she's also very beautiful. Like, I feel like she can probably find someone who's not Killian Murphy, a man who like, his main characteristic habit is like, he stole a bunch of brown sauce. So he's putting brown sauce in all of his food, which is not attractive. (laughs) And he like, doesn't have any prospects. And once again, as Morgan said, he did a violent crime against her. Literally just go to a bar in a different part of the city. She could find another boyfriend. It's fine. And that, like, I was already frustrated with this film. But when that happened, I was like, no, I reject this. But that also feels like such an early 2000s movie thing, right? The sort of, like, cutesy, like, wrap it all up, whatever. I mean, just one other way in which this film has something in common with Love Actually. Yeah. Yes, we were joking about that at the end of last week's episode. Little did we know that that actually is quite an apt comparison. <laughs> it comes for this from film. the same era of gender. Who can even say what I absorbed from that subconsciously <laughs> as an early teen? <laughs> I didn't watch Love actually until the same summer, actually, that I watched Boye. But yeah, this film, not great. It was like, it, it really did like sensorially transport me back. Yeah, very interesting time capsule, interesting view back into history. It's not really one that I'd recommend. I liked it more than Morgan did, but I can kind of see why a lot of people have nostalgia for it. The music alone, it wasn't that I recognized a lot of it. (laughs) They dropped the magnetic fields halfway through the film, and I was like, the magnetic fields? (laughs) I was just like, ah, how many times did I listen to this when I was 15? But like the opening sequence that you were describing when Colin Farrell's like chatting up the cashier and then punches her and runs out. I don't know what song they were playing over the like montage that follows, but it just sounded so much like the music that I listened to at that time. I was like, oh, it's all coming back. <laughs> I mean, the vibes were very strongly like badly drawn boy. Like that was the vibe. Yeah, it's just funny to be like, oh, I, yeah, I was like around for this and it was the past now. <laughs> But all observation, but this is what we've invented new types of sexism since then. Yeah, it's true. We've sort of progressed. But yeah, uh, thank you so much again to our lovely patron, Snout Beetle. Snout Beetle! (laughs) For requesting this, even though we did not particularly care for it. We obviously always appreciate when people request these films and, uh, it's just really fascinating to get to watch this like random selection of stuff that people request because it is such such a range. I like to think that we are providing a sort of 90s era browsing through the video store library experience for people. <laughs> yeah, truly. And again, even though I I really did not like this, um, I love Killian Murphy and Colin Farrell one of my absolute favorites and i really like john crowley so it was int- like i'm glad i can yeah i mean i will this. think of this when i eventually get around to watching brooklyn yes um and i'll reiterate like boy a is 
absolutely fantastic. It's very dark. But if you're up for that, and if you like Andrew Garfield, I think it's maybe his best performance. But like, very few people have seen it. So better than Silence? It's would be up there for sure. He's amazing in it. I mean, again, I, I watched that and I didn't really know who he was. And I was like, holy shit, like, this guy is incredible. It's like, this guy's Spider-Man? <laughs> uh, some interview with him that I read recently, he was like, when people come up to me on the street and mention that one, I'm like, yes. <laughs> Which I can imagine because can't happen very often. So that's what I would recommend by these people if, if you're going to watch something. But uh, next week, we will be checking in with a different nostalgic fave. Another listener request which just had its 10th anniversary of release. So we're, we're coming in a couple weeks late, but that's fine. We will be talking about Drive. Which I recall being great. Iconic score, iconic jacket, cute man, somewhat racist backstory. Yes. Gonna be a lot to discuss. <laughs> I was obsessed with this movie at the time. Like truly just loved it so, so much. And I have, I am confident it will stand up. So I'm I'm really looking forward to watching it because I haven't seen it in a long time. Oh yeah, I've not seen it since it came out in theaters. I feel like I maybe saw it once since, but certainly not in ages. I have listened to the soundtrack many times. Oh yeah, we've all listened to the soundtrack. <laughs> so that will be a lot of fun. Uh, would you like to preview some of our other coming attractions? Yeah, we've got three weeks of uh, bookings to announce to you so you can all watch stuff in advance. We are finally, after next week's Drive episode, going to do The Green Knight because at last it's coming out in the UK. So The Green Knight starring Dev Patel, very critically discussed uh, fantasy movie. Looking forward to that. And then the week after that, we're going to be discussing a show called The North Water, which you may not have heard of because it's on like AMC's streaming service in the US. It's just airing now on the BBC in the UK. But this is a prestige historical drama about like a whaling ship that gets fucked up in the Arctic Circle somewhere. Morgan has watched all of this already and assures me that it's fantastic. I did not need that assurance because with a premise like that, I know I'm already on board, <laughs> but I'm happy to hear that it's really good. And I'm really excited to find out how all these men have psychological problems on a cold boat. Yeah, I watched this in the last week. So it's on AMC Plus, which I'm mad about because no one has fucking AMC Plus. However, you can get a free trial for one week and there are only five episodes of the show. So I did that and I canceled it. So I didn't pay anything. So that is doable. It's very dark, but it's very compelling. So if you think that it will be up your alley, you can definitely watch it in a couple sittings. I fucking loved this thing. This is my favorite thing I've watched in a while. Um, it's directed by Andrew Haig, who did the film's weekend in 45 years and also was one of the producers on the show looking he's a genius oh so is this a gay show not really it's i mean no there's some it, it's it will be interesting to talk about like why he okay. wanted to do it but like it's definitely not like a i would not describe it as a gay show but like there's there's a reason he picked it i think okay okay so this sounds like a Slightly more prestige version of the already quite prestige The Terror, which as we all know yeah. has a cult following. Yeah. And then after we talk about all those things, we will be doing our dispatch from the New York and London film festivals. Yeah, we're going to have some very juicy movies to discuss. This year is a fantastic film year. Lots of cool new releases. We will be watching them. Yes. So all of that's coming up. You can also check out our Patreon for a bonus episode where we talk about summer reading, what we read this summer, you know, school starting. So we have to 
Check I'm looking in. forward to this because we're both going to just be coming at this from very different angles. Yeah. I'll be like, well, the Victorian novels I read this summer were, and Gab will not be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the books I, I read have like a map of a fake location in the front page. Yeah. And of course, if you would like to request a movie for us to watch, you can also do that on Patreon. And that is at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast. Gabia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Scenes. And you can find me at Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.